Amen. Good morning. To those of you in the house and to those of you in your houses or in your cars or wherever else that you're watching, I want to say a special good morning to those of you who are watching at home, and that includes my two boys, Gavin and Callan, so I just want to say hello. Um, I don't get to do that very often, and so you got to allow me some, some dad moment there. Uh, and also a, a special, hi mom, she's watching in Colorado right now, and uh, I don't get to do that very often either, so I appreciate you allowing me the uh, indulgence there. So good to be with you and, and joining you, and I want to um, just take a, a little second here and augment what Eric uh, shared with you as far as the announcements. So I'm the executive director of Union Baptist Association, which is one of the associations that you uh, support with your mission dollars, and I'm so thankful for that. Um, and so a couple of things that UBA and the Gulf Coast Association are partnering together on. Uh, one is this Who's Your Neighbor that's coming up on September 28th. And what that is, is it's, a, it's a, a training experience for you. There are two different opportunities for you to uh, log in on September 28th. It's a one-hour conversation. It's live uh, with Keelan Cook, who's on my staff. He's a former IMB missionary, and now he's a strategist that works on my staff. And what he's going to do over that hour conversation is teach you how to build relationships with your neighbors uh, who might be from a different ethnic background or religious background than you. And so if you have been curious about how to build relationships with your neighbors and you're unsure about you know, what questions are inbounds, how to start a relationship, um, what, what are some of the basics of other world religions or other cultures that I need to know in order to you know, not make some of the, some basic mistakes. Um, what, what can I do? How can I get started? This is the conversation for you. I think it's going to be well worth your time. It's just an hour. And so if you want to do that in the middle of your day, go for it. If you want to do that at the end of your day, do that. It's on September 28th. All the information uh, is, is on the church website, or if you want to find it on the UBA website or on our Twitter feed, Facebook, you can find all of that information there. Again, it's a partnership between this church and the Gulf Coast Association and, and uh, UBA. So uh, we're very proud of that, and uh, I think it's going to be well worth your time. And the second thing is, I was so glad to hear Eric. Am I, am I getting a lot of feedback? Should I switch? Okay, I'm going to switch my mics here. Got to turn it off, my, off mute. There we go. All right. I'm back and louder than ever. Okay. They'll fix that. All right. So the second thing is, I was so glad to hear you talk about Hurricane Laura relief. So just a little more than two weeks ago, uh, Hurricane Laura came ashore in southwest Louisiana, uh, right there on the state line. And so uh, some communities in Texas got hit. Uh, Lake Charles, Louisiana got hit. And uh, UBA and Gulf Coast Association and, and actually every association between Houston and Lake Charles has partnered with that community over there because that community was devastated. It didn't just get hit by a hurricane. It essentially got hit by an F3 tornado that was 60 miles wide. And so an F3 tornado is a tornado with winds going 150 miles an hour. And so if you have seen any pictures on social media where things look like they just are exploded and, and splinters lying on the ground, you have seen all the pictures of that area. And so we have been partnering with churches over there. There are more than 70 churches in the greater Lake Charles area. And so uh, your, uh, your church among 
hundreds of others across the greater Houston area. Frankly, we're just paying back all the favors that we got in Harvey because uh, they sent their churches and workers and supplies to us when we badly needed it. And so we are trying to repay the favors um, as we are, are sending supplies over there. And so all the water that you can raise, all the non-perishable food that you can gather, uh, fix-a-flat mosquito repellent, um, all of that stuff is so badly needed. In fact, um, I've been working very closely with Bruce Baker. He is my counterpart over in the Lake Charles area. And 12 to 15 pastors had severe damage to their homes. Like their homes are unlivable right now. And another 12 to 15 pastors had, had really bad damage done to their homes where they're kind of making it work with extensive tarping done to their homes. And so even though the news cycle has moved past the hurricane, I want to just kind of keep that in front of you and say, please continue to bring those supplies, continue to raise awareness among your, your circles of influence um, because they continue to need our help. Most of the, the Lake Charles region over there will not have power for at least another month. Um, they are just now starting to get potable water restored to that region. Uh, they are just now starting to get gasoline supplies restored to that region. And so uh, they are going to need our help for the foreseeable future, not just in restoring some basic necessities, but also rebuilding. And so I know that your church has a heart for missions. They are our neighbors, and so we are going to take care of them. We are going to have their back because when we needed them, they had our back. And so uh, I just wanted to keep those two things in front of you. Now, those announcements aside, let's get into uh, the heart of the, uh, the passage this morning. Now, I bet you're wondering if I'm going to step into the sermon series because Pastor David left us at a cliffhanger last week. He left us literally at the edge of a fiery furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are about to be thrown into the fiery furnace because they refused to bow down to King Nebuchadnezzar's golden uh, statue. And I, I am not going to do that. Uh, Pastor David did not really give me that option. Um, and since he has no voice, he can't really defend himself at the moment, uh, though he probably is holding a wireless microphone at the moment. So I, I, I'm going to play within the rules here. But I will say, just as, a, as an illustration that he can use at some point, um, my family, a lot of my family lives in Colorado, and you might have heard about some of the wildfires that are burning in Colorado, California, and, and Oregon, and other places. Uh, I have friends that let their kids play outside this week for about 30 minutes. They live, as the crow flies, about 50 miles from the Cameron Peak forest fire. After playing outside in their yard for 30 minutes, they came inside, and they all smelled like smoke. Now, I just want you to file that away, okay? That's a sermon illustration for a sermon I'm not preaching, okay? They smelled like smoke after being 50 miles away from a forest fire. You'll use that some other week. Okay, so I'm not doing that. Now, we have been talking in the, the book of Daniel for the last several weeks about and just taking it for granted that God's people were carried off into exile by King Nebuchadnezzar. They were slaves in the kingdom of Babylon, but we didn't really pay a lot of attention to how they got there. And so what I want to do this morning is provide a little bit of context because the question is, well, what hope is there for anyone who finds themselves in captivity? What hope is there and, and how did they get there? And so I, I'm even going to draw on the board today. Can you, can you believe that Pastor David is letting me use his board? Now, 
if I have trouble with the board, I really am going to call a guy my own age to come up and help me with technology, which isn't going to hurt my pride at all, okay? So we're, gonna, we're going to eventually get to here. This is 586. Yikes. This is already off to a bad start. 586. In fact, that was so bad, I'm going to start over. Five. Hello. There it is. There it is. See? We'll get there. 586. See? All right. 586 BC. That is the point that King Nebuchadnezzar takes them off into slavery. But how do we get all the way to here? Because these are God's people. Like, how did they get into slavery in the first place? And I will tell you, it starts all the way back here. It starts with idolatry. Now, idolatry, we always think of, well, you know, craven little images and carved things and, you know, home idols and shelves and stuff. And, you know, that sounds innocent, right? It sounds like something that none of us would ever be tempted by. But idolatry can be sneaky. It can be seductive. It can be these little things in your life that you hold back from God and say, God, um, you can have my life. You can have control over these things, but there's this one little area I'm going to keep off to myself. And maybe it's a habit. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a website. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's just a thing that you keep to yourself. It's a guilty pleasure. You know, maybe it's just this little thing that you're going to keep to yourself. And you find joy in that thing. You find release in that thing. You find satisfaction in that thing, or at least you think you do. But it's an illusion. It's a mirage. And just like mirages in the desert, it will not be there for you when you badly need it. If you're crawling through the desert and you need water and you see the mirage, you think, that is what I need. That is the satisfaction that I need. But when you get to that point, it will not be there. There will be no satisfaction for you. Idolatry is a false hope because in the end, idols will always let you down. Now, I'm going to fly through Scripture this morning because there's a lot of Scripture that we need to cover in order to get from this dot all the way over to this dot. And so we're going to move very fast this morning. But again, if it all starts with idolatry, we need to figure out how this got started. Now, I'm going to skip the Garden of Eden, even though that actually, at the heart of it, is idolatry. And we're going to go to Exodus chapter 20. And I'm going to read you the very first two of the Ten Commandments that Moses is receiving from God. And it says here in God's Word, Exodus chapter 20, it says, And God spoke these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So God says to Moses, the first two commandments, this is how important it is. Don't have any other gods before me. Don't worship idols. And of course, those of you with a church background, you know that at that moment, as God was saying that to Moses, saying, this is how important it is to me that you have no other gods before me. At the bottom of Mount Sinai, Moses is at the top talking to God. At the bottom, the Israelites are getting so impatient with the God that just brought them up out of Egypt. 
that they throw a party and they say to Aaron, Moses' brother, we're, we're tired of waiting on God to tell us whatever he's going to tell us and give us the book and the laws and tell us the rules for how it is to live the most successful life that we can possibly live and live different than all the other countries that seem to find every possible way of screwing up. And so would you please form for us an idol? And Aaron, being the intelligent man that he is, being the brother of Moses, the guy who led them out, out of slavery, Aaron says, no, I will not do that. No, wait, that's not what he said. Aaron said, bring me all the gold that you have, and he formed for them a golden cow. He formed them a golden calf. And then he said to them, here, O Israel, is the God that led you out of Egypt. Except they know that's not the truth, right? Because if you've read the story at all or heard the story or even seen the Charlton Heston movie around Easter every year, you know it was a pillar of fire. You know it was a pillar of cloud. There was not a golden calf in sight. And so God continues to bring the Ten Commandments to Moses. Moses eventually comes down out of the mountain. And if you really want to read one of the best lines in the whole Bible and you want to hear how silly sin sounds... When your feet are held to the fire. One of the best lines in the whole Bible is in Exodus chapter 32 when Moses goes to his brother, as only a brother can do, and says, um, Aaron, there's a cow over here, and people are worshiping it as if it's something. What's the story there? And Aaron, as if this sounds smart, says to his brother Moses, you see, I, I knew you were going to ask me about that, but uh, the people brought me all their gold, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. That is what the Bible says in Exodus 32. That is not even me paraphrasing. He said, I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Now, I'm sure all of you are thinking, I would never say anything that stupid, but sin, when called on the carpet, we all say something that stupid. Because sin, at its heart, when you, when you put it out into the light and you hold it up to scrutiny, sin is silly. Idol worship is silly. Holding something back in our lives saying, I'm going to find satisfaction over here and not over here from the God of the universe who says, that stuff is silly. You should find satisfaction in me. We say stuff like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to throw it into the fire. But out came this calf. What was I supposed to do? And so... Idol worship creeps into the lives of God's people very, very early. And so while God gives them the law and gives them these rules to say, you don't want to be like other nations. You don't want to be like all these other people. You want to follow me. If you follow me and you listen to me, I will tell you how to find your best life. I will tell you how to live in a way that you will find peace and joy and satisfaction because after all, I made you. I designed you. I designed you to be in relationship with me. I'm telling you the secrets to life if you will just listen. And so I'm even going to do you a favor and write them down for you. I'm going to carve them into stone for you. And so we're going to fast forward a lot, and eventually God's people say, you know what, um, it's fun following around Moses but then eventually Moses dies. He hands it off to Joshua. And eventually Joshua dies and they enter into the period of the judges. You can read about that in the book of Judges. And so 
Judges eventually ends, and then they have a judge by the name of Samuel. And Samuel uh, is a good judge. They like following him. But as you will find in Scripture, the parent-to-child handoff in Scripture is not always fluid. And Samuel's children were not the leaders that Samuel was. And so Israel goes to, and Israel, all of God's people, go to Samuel and say, hey, your kids are losers. And uh, that's a paraphrase. Uh, your kids are losers, and they take bribes. That's not a paraphrase. They actually did that. Um, they can be bought, and so we would rather not follow them. And it strikes us that all the other nations in the world, they have kings. We, we would like a king. We're, we're tired of following God um, and judges that he appoints. We would really like a king to go into battle for us. And Samuel, I'm sure, just slapped his forehead, right? Like, hold on. We have, we have something better than all the other nations. We don't need a king to go into battle for us. Have you not studied your history? Um, you know, like, we have, we have the pillar of fire. We have the pillar of cloud. He makes the sun stand still in the sky. We have, like, God. We don't need a king. And they say, yeah, we really want a king. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 8, I'm going to read to you how this goes because Samuel takes offense at this. And God says, if you think you're taking offense, I'm the one that's actually being offended here. He says in 1 Samuel chapter 8, he says, then all, um, then all the elders of Israel gathered together, and they said, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. And this displeased Samuel, and then you skip down, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now, again, he said from the day they came out of Egypt, they've been doing this. Allah, golden cow, anyone? So now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So God says, you can give them a king, but before you do that, please warn them and tell them what they're in for. And so Samuel gives them this impassioned plea about what a king is really going to do to them. And I mean do to them, not do for them. He's like, a king is going to take your stuff. A king is going to dominate over your land. He's going, to, he's going to put some of you into slavery. He's going to take some of the best and the brightest and put him into service for you. He's going to take your goods. You want no part of this. And after hearing this impassioned plea, <laughs> at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people say, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like the other nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord as if the Lord wasn't listening in the first place. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. And so here we start, and we have a series of kings for Israel. The first one is Saul. Don't have all the time to tell you about the story of Saul, but it's a good one. And Saul rules for Israel for 40 years, and then we come to David, and David rules for 40 years. And you might have heard about David. David did some cool stuff. Didn't end so great for David, but David was a man after God's own heart. And David hands it off to Solomon. And Solomon ruled for 40 years, but Solomon had a little problem with the ladies. 
Solomon liked the ladies. Solomon liked a lot of ladies. Solomon got married 700 times and had 350 girlfriends on the side. And Solomon had um, a penchant to marry and have girlfriends that were not followers of God. And when he did that, his heart tended to go astray and start worshiping the gods of his wives and his girlfriends. And the Lord warned him about this not once, but twice. And after a while, even though Solomon prayed for wisdom and received wisdom, the bedroom for Solomon was the thing that he held back. And Solomon, his heart was all over the place. And and this is an interesting problem for Solomon. And you will see this borne out in the kings of God's people because it says in in 1 Kings chapter 3, it says, uh, the people were sacrificing at high places, which is okay because the temple wasn't built yet. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David, his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. What that says is, before there was a temple, people were making sacrifices to God at high places, which are, you know, little spots all over the hills um, around Jerusalem and the other areas, the other towns. They were sacrificing to God. Solomon was not supposed to do that because he was not a Levite. He was a king. But even that, he says, he loved the Lord, but a couple of verses before that, it talks about him marrying all these other women. And then if you fast forward to 1 Kings chapter 11, it says, And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, the other women, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice... And you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you. I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. So God says, look, I made a promise to David that the Messiah would come from the line of David. So obviously, the throne cannot ever leave the tribe of Judah, the line of David. So I made that promise, but I'm going to tear most of the kingdom away from you. So after Solomon, we're going to have a split in God's people. We're going to have a split in God's people. And God says, I'm going to give it to one of your servants. So the kingdom eventually passes into the son of Solomon, which is named Rehoboam, okay? Now, don't get confused because both of the guys are Boams. We have Rehoboam and Jeroboam, okay? It's, this is a real bummer of the Boams, all right? Now, Rehoboam is Solomon's son, and he has a chance here to, to recover some of what Solomon has squandered away. At his coronation, okay, the moment he becomes king, the people come to him and say, look, Solomon built the temple, which is what he was supposed to do, but he taxed us really heavily, and he gathered all of our stuff, as you know, Samuel told us he was going to do many, many years ago, but that's not the point. The point is, he taxed us really heavily. We would like to not be taxed so heavily. So would you please ease up a bit? Just, just ease up a bit. And Rehoboam says, I'll think about it. And Rehoboam, being the the very, very new king that he is, takes 
uh, time with some consultants. Now, I'm a professional consultant, and I'm about to be offended by this story, okay? Rehoboam gathers his older consultants, and his older consultants say to him, you should ease up on the taxes. Listen to the people, because they're right. And Rehoboam says, interesting, interesting. I will take that under advisement. And then Rehoboam goes to his younger consultants, probably the ones his own age, and Rehoboam says, what do you think? And his younger consultants say to him, if the people think that they were taxed heavily under Solomon, they haven't seen anything yet. You need to prove to these people who's boss. You're the king now. You need to really tell them, well, if you think it was bad before, you should have stopped whining because now I'm going to show you who's boss. I'm going to tax you out the wazoo, and now let's get down to business. And Rehoboam, in his infinite wisdom, says, I'm going with the younger consultants and not the older consultants. He needs new consultants. So Rehoboam goes to the people and says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm listening to my younger consultants. I'm going to tax you like you've never been taxed before. And the people say, we thought you might say that. We're out. And so they leave. And 10 tribes go up into the north. They form a new nation. 10 out of the 12 tribes of God's people follow a guy named Jeroboam, and they go up north. And they say, we're done. We're gone. One tribe, really one and a half, Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, which is a very small tribe, Judah and Benjamin remain with Rehoboam in the south. Now, the legacy of Judah under Rehoboam is borne out in all of the kings that follow him, but here's how Rehoboam kind of finishes out his time. Now, for a while, after that very traumatic experience of losing the majority of his people, he starts out, he starts listening to God, but then this is the indictment that is written about him in 1 Kings 14. And Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins that they committed more than all that their fathers had done. For they had also built for themselves high places and pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree, that there were also male cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel." So now there is a temple in Jerusalem, but they don't use the temple. They use these high places that should have been torn down once the temple was put in place. They use these high places to worship other gods and to perform all the stuff that God told those other nations. That's why they were being judged. He told Israel, stay away from all those other things. Now they're doing them. And 100 years after the split, 100 years after the split, the kingdom of Judah... This is the indictment. This is, this is a king called Jehoash. This is eight kings after Solomon. It says in 2 Kings chapter 12, And Jehoash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all his days, because Jehoiah the priest instructed him, Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. The people continued to sacrifice and make offerings on the high places. This is a king who even did everything right. He had good counsel. He had good consultants. He followed what the Lord wanted him to do, except those high places were held back. Never did anything about the high places. They existed for 100 years. And he never did anything about them because they were held back. They were worshiping idols in the southern kingdom for 100 years. 
Now, what about the north? What about Jeroboam? Surely, Jeroboam is going to do something about this because God spoke through a prophet to Jeroboam, a servant of, of Solomon, and said, I'm going to give you 10 kingdoms. I'm going to set you up, Jeroboam. In fact, this is what it says. Spoken through a prophet, and I will take you, and you shall reign over all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. That's what we're going to call the new kingdom, Israel. And if you will listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did, I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David. I will give Israel to you. And I will afflict, another word for that is humble, the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. He tells Jeroboam, but not forever, because I made a promise to Judah. But they need to learn a lesson. They need to have their attention gotten. Now, the very next chapter, after Jeroboam hears this, Jeroboam, he said, he's hearing, God's going to set me up. God's going to set me up. The very next chapter Here's a little phrase that you need to pay attention to. If you're ever reading through the Bible and you see the phrase, somebody either thought to himself or in the ESV it says, said in his heart. Here's the, here's the in 1 Kings chapter 12, 26, Jeroboam said in his heart. In the NIV it says, thought to himself. That phrase almost always comes after God says something to somebody and gives very clear instructions. It's like when somebody says, and having been in the ministry now for 20 years, I, every once in a while I'll come across somebody who says, um, I read this in the Bible and now I'm going to pray about it. That's an interesting place for a pastor to be in because that's just begging a pastor to refute what's in the Bible. But what every pastor wants to do is say, if you read it in the Bible, you don't need to pray about it because it's in the Bible. If you pray about it, the Holy Spirit is not going to contradict what's in the Bible. Because God doesn't contradict himself. So I'm just telling you that on behalf of a pastor so that he doesn't have to say that later. Okay? Because that's what he wants to say. Of course, he's not going to say anything right now. But when he gets a voice, that's what he's going to want to say. Okay? But here's the thing. God says very clearly something, and Jeroboam said in his heart, he thought to himself, red flag, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord of Jerusalem, then the heart of the people will turn against their Lord to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel. Mm, as a consultant, this hurts me. And made not one, but two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold, your gods, O Israel who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Where have I heard that before? And he set one in Bethel, which is a, a town in the south, and the other he put up in Dan, which is the very northern part of, of Israel's territory. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to, uh, to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not Levites. He not only set up high places, he fashioned golden cows. This is a man who needs to study history more and take counsel less. But he sets up high places. And so now we have the legacy of Israel. But the interesting part about the history of Israel is it doesn't last as long as the southern kingdom of Judah. Because a hundred years after that, 
We have not eight kings, but 11 kings. One of those kings reigned for a week. One of those kings reigned for a couple of months. There is one loser after another loser after another loser in the northern kingdom. This is what's written after the account of Zimri, who ruled for seven days. So he died because of the sins he had committed doing evil in the eyes of the Lord and walking in the ways of Jeroboam and in the sin he had committed and caused Israel to commit. That's the legacy of the northern kingdom. And so I kind of made this too long because after a hundred years, both of these kingdoms are a mess. They're both in idol worship. In 200 years, the northern kingdom is no more. It's taken over by Assyria. And so the split happens about 930 B.C. 722, Assyria comes in. They take over the northern kingdom of Israel. They conquer it. They take most of those people off into captivity. And then around 605, the Babylonians take over, and the Babylonians swoop in, and they take over what had been taken over by Assyria, and they conquer that territory, and then they start picking a fight with Egypt, but in order to get to Egypt, you've got to go through Judah, and so they end up conquering Judah on the way to Egypt, and that is actually when Daniel was taken off into captivity in Babylon. There were three waves and so now you have Daniel taken off in 605. You have another one, uh, an, another wave of slaves taken off. And so while the northern kingdom lasted about 200 years, you have the southern kingdom lasting 350 years. And some of you may be asking yourselves, but I'm sure, I'm sure that they didn't rebel that whole time. The last king of Judah, Zedekiah, until the very last day was ignoring the prophet Jeremiah and his instructions from God, the very last day. And we don't have time for it. You'll have to take my word for it. And it would be easy to pick on Zedekiah. It would be easy to say, well, surely, surely we don't all try and ignore what God is telling us. Surely we're not all that stubborn. But here's the thing. That's how seductive idol worship is. That's how seductive it is to keep things back from God and hold on to these little things that we think are points of release. Because in this world that is broken and messed up, we all try and work our way out of it at some point in our life. And some of us try and work our way out through jobs, and some of us try and work our way out through education, and some of us try and work our way out through drugs or alcohol or diets or looking good or whatever it is or finding the best friends. All of us try and do that at some point in our life. But the reality is this world is messed up and we all know that and working our way out of that world never works. Why? Because this world is not what God created it to be. This world is not the ideal that God created it to be. And we, as creation, cannot fix, cannot fix what it was designed to be. That would be like a painting trying to fix itself. You need the painter to fix the painting. And so, if we really want to be part of the ideal, if we really want to be living our best life, then we need a way to get from here 
over to here, and we need ideas that don't come from ourselves because we will exhaust all the best ideas that we have and still come up wanting. And God looks at that scenario and says, I have the solution for you. And the solution is Jesus. And Jesus is the perfect solution because Jesus is going to bridge these two worlds for you. Jesus sees you trying to work all your own solutions over here. And, and this, this is just the reality of us choosing to live apart from God's ideal. It's what everybody does. So there isn't one person in here who hasn't made this choice to live apart from God's ideal because we all sin, all of us. And so Jesus says, I see that everybody has made this choice to sin. I see that in your nature. And so God sends his son to live a perfect life, to die an excruciating, humiliating death on the cross, but then to rise again from the grave, to ascend into heaven, and to offer us not just eternal life, but also the abundant life here on earth, to live into your design and to be part of that redemption process as God wants to redeem creation toward the ideal that he intended in the first place. So how do we get access to that? We ask Jesus to come and be the Lord of our life. And it's very simple. And you can do it today. So here's how you do it. You say, I know that this dynamic is at play in my life. I know it is. I, I have tried all this other stuff. I've tried all these idols. I've been stuck in this cycle of mirages, and I know it's not working. And so what, I, what do I need to do? Here's what you need to do. You need to say, Lord, I'm sorry. I need to repent. Repent just means confess. I, I, I am sorry, and I need to change. Help me change. And when you repent when you confess that Jesus is who he said he was. He was the son of God, sent by God, raised from the dead. You say, Lord, I want, I want that life. I want a better life. I want not just eternal life in heaven, but I want abundant life here. That is trusting in Jesus. And you can do it right now, whether you're at home, whether you're here. You don't need to wait for a special moment. You don't need to wait for a counsel. You pray and say, God, come into my life. I, I need forgiveness for my sins and I want access to a better life. Guide me, control my life. I'm giving you my life. Now, for those of you who have, who have made that decision, this is about trusting Jesus fully. Because trusting Jesus fully is the only way to escape the idol worship, the holding stuff back that we all do. And so for those of you who say, well, I, I, I've done that, then, then the question remains for us, what are you holding back? You know, I, I, love, I love the illustration that we used for Psalm 37.5 today. I thought that was fantastic. The only way to really commit to the life, and, and some of you are thinking, well, we're just talking about some, you know, eternal life, and it's all ethereal. I'm talking about day-to-day -day living the abundant life that Jesus says you can have. 
I'm talking about real results. The only way to do that is to commit fully. So when that verse says commit and trust and God will act, it's the same as stacking those quarters on there and ripping that dollar bill out with everything that you have. It is about giving God every moment, every decision that you have. It is about saying, God, I, this is what I think about this. This is what I believe about this, but is that what you believe? Because I want to believe what you believe. And in this world right now, our beliefs are being challenged. Our thoughts are being challenged. Everything is being held up to a bright light, and some of you find that scary, but here's why I think that's okay. Because as disciples, which is what you become when you give your life to Jesus, you become a disciple, you become a learner. That process is never done. We're in the house today, not to confirm what we believe, but to learn. You know, every, every week when I do prep, I learn, and I, I hope I learn. If not, I'm not doing it right. But we're disciples, we're learners, we're followers of Jesus. And sometimes that means that we are going to have our minds changed. And so, especially in 2020, as, as the world is saying, what do you believe about race? What do you believe about justice? What do you believe about compassion? What do you believe about loving your neighbor? Some of us are uncomfortable because we're like, ah, I don't want to talk about that anymore. I, I made up my mind about that 20 years ago. Maybe we need to say again, Lord, am I right about this? Am I thinking what you're thinking about this? Because the Bible says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so this cycle is never done. Because once you are living the abundant life, part of that is being sent back into the world and being asked to represent Jesus. And part of that being asked to represent him is to be constantly transformed, constantly questioning, constantly putting what you have at the feet of Jesus and saying, Jesus, make me new. Make me new. Renew me. Refine me. It's part of being a disciple. And it may make some of us uncomfortable, but that's part of not being in charge. We are followers of Jesus. And so whether you are following Jesus for the first time today or whether you, are, you have been following Jesus for years now, I'm going to pray for you in just a minute. And I'm asking you to lay everything at the foot of the cross. Say, Jesus, take it and transform me. Renew my mind and make me new and use me to help redeem this world for your sake. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for what you are doing in this place. I thank you so much for the worship that proclaimed your name early on. Lord, I thank you so much for your word and how it guides us to not just eternal life, but to a full life here on earth. Lord God, you guide us, you promise us that you will always be with us, that you will never leave us. And while there is so much going on in this world, we know that you are the rock. We know that you are the calm in the storm. We know that you are the whisper in all the noise. 
And so, Lord, I pray for those within the hearing of my voice. Lord, I pray that for those who are still in this cycle of chasing the mirage and the illusion, for those who are still holding back a portion of their life, Lord, that they would trust you fully today. Lord, and for those who have committed their life to you, Lord, that they would give you everything, that I would give you everything. Lord, that there would be nothing held back, no thought, no practice, no habit. Lord, that there would be no biblical-sounding defense for how we spend our time or where we go or who we speak with, but, Lord, that we would make everything subject to you because, Lord, you are sending us into this world to represent you, to make a difference for you, And Lord, we want to do that to the utmost of our abilities, Lord, because it is about you. This world needs you. It doesn't need us, but it needs you working through us. Lord, it is for your glory. It is for the sake of your name. And it is for the hope that is offered in you by trusting in you that I pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.